0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So in his lectures over the past two days, Professor Descola has traced the remarkable range of uh, what he has called extra-modern collectives, where collectives are understood as assemblages of non-humans and humans. In my remarks for today, I'd like to consider the question of assembling, the assembling of humans and non-humans from a different, very different direction. it will seem for most of it that I'll be taking us very far from the lectures, uh, but I hope that these departures will prove fruitful. So before I get into it, I just want to start with maybe three initiating provocations um, that will frame the rest of my remarks. First, as I mentioned in my comments during the first lecture, the nature-culture divide has always produced a differentiation of humans in which some humans were cast as closer to nature and thus the world of animals. The human-non-human divide has always thus implicated the division of humanity itself. When this division of humanity maps on, while this division maps on in various ways to the the division of the moderns and the extra modern communities who, who continue to resist and deflect the project of modernization, it is also a division that ensnares those David Scott following Talal Assad calls the conscripts of modernity. For Scott, non-Europeans were conscripted to Europe's modernity project, were that is coercively obligated to render themselves its objects and agents. It should be noted that from this perspective, even the difference of what has gone under the rubric of the extra modern over the last uh, two days would have to be reconsidered. In so far as those at the margins of modernity, of the modern modernity project are to quote Scott again, increasingly obliged to respond to and be managed by the categories of thought brought into play by European modernity. We see this in yesterday's lectures, for instance, as threats of extraction and agricultural expansion force communities to adopt a modern vision of territory as exclusive and spatially delimited. So I'll just leave this question of whether something like conscription would be the terms we might employ more widely. My second starting point, though, is that whether or not we apply this conception of of conscription to the uh, extra-modern collectives discussed in Professor Descola's work, we can think with the figures of what Scott has called the conscripts of modernity to examine uh, another meaning of the extra-modern. That is, we might take the extra modern to be not only those that sit at the boundaries of the modern world, resisting its totalizing logics, but those we might accept, those we might consider extra modern because they are excessively modern. Conscripted, they are not outside the terms of modernity, but their relation to it, their positioning as liminal figures within the project of modernity, provide a distinctive vantage point. The excessively modern, the hypermodern, reveal the logics and limits of modernity from within rather than from without. And it is in this way that I'd like to think about the aesthetic practices I'll discuss in a moment. Third and finally, I want to think with Professor Descola's phrase, body territory from the second lecture. You will recall from the example of Amazonian communities he described yesterday, that the, way, that the territory is viewed as, quote, a large, living body that feeds, reproduces, and weaves links with other bodies. When territory is understood in these ways, the extractive logics that threaten the Amazon are not simply territorial incursions, but bodily violations, insofar as the territory is a living organism composed of material and spiritual relationships of humans and nonhumans. In what follows, I'd like to think with, the colla- with this collapse of the body and territory by thinking of taking up the body itself as a kind of territory, or at least a spatialized site of assemblage. So, I draw on these three provocations to consider what I hope will will be a kind of analog to the cosmopolitical collectives to which Professor D'Ascola has drawn our attention. I would like to suggest that perhaps the practices of the extra modern world understood as those as both those uncaptured by modernity and those that are b- overburdened by an excessive modernity might be closer than we, what we than we think so I'll dive in now and, okay. So almost nine years ago, the Ferguson police, uh, Missouri police officer, Darren Wilson, shot and killed uh, 18 year old Michael Brown. Michael Brown's murder would ignite a wave of political unrest and mobilization to be repeated again in the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. After Brown's murder, a grand jury was called to investigate Wilson's use of force. In his testimony to the grand jury, justifying his actions as a matter of self-defense, Wilson described Brown as monstrous. When I, gra- quote, when I grabbed him, the only way I can describe it is that I felt like a five-year-old holding, holding on to Hulk Hogan, Wilson noted. Brown, according to Wilson, was that so angry that he looked like a demon who grunted and was aggravated. As we know, Wilson was not indicted. For many of his depictions of, for many his depictions of Brown as both superhuman and nonhuman recalled an earlier moment of racialized police violence in the United States in 1992. Shortly after the police involved. Um, police involved in the video recorded beating of Rodney King were acquitted, it was revealed that the Los Angeles Police Department used the unofficial term no humans involved to describe the murder and or bodily violation of people of color. In light of this revelation, the Jamaican literary theorist and philosopher, Sylvia Winter, penned an open letter denouncing how the distinction of the human non-human had subjected racialized communities to the quote, genocidal effect of incarceration and elimination by ostensibly normal and everyday means. She indicted her colleagues in the human sciences for the ways their categories and frameworks had facilitated this very distinction. The bifurcation of the nature culture, human, non-human, Winter argued, had transformed some into the sign of the, quote, lack of the human, the conceptual other, to that of the properly human. The question of the ways in which a nature-culture divide was implicated in practices of dehumanization has, of course, a much longer history beyond the question of police violence. And in traditions of black political thought and practice, there have been very various answers to this problem of dehumanization. What I'd like to highlight today is one strategy or response that refuses the reclamation of black humanity in ways that rely on the bifurcation of nature, culture, human, -human. non-human. Rather than decry and reject the association of blackness with animality, Animality this probes it probes this connection to account for the permeability and plasticity of the human And in doing so it reconfigures the body as a terrain Maybe a territory on which articulations of the human non-human are assembled So I'd like to briefly illustrate this possibility um, through the work of the uh, Contemporary artist Wangechi Muthu Um, Wangechi Muthu was uh, born in Um, Born in Kenya and studying and practicing in New York since the 1990s, Muthu's practice spans a range of media, from sculpture, painting, collage, to film and performance. Her wide body of work, currently the subject of a major retrospective at the New Museum in New York, has consistently and creatively scrambled the nature-culture-human-non-human divide. Central to her intervention is the ways that she positions the human figure as a kind of exploratory site. So consider this 2002 piece, Intertwined, which represents two conjoined figures with both anthropomorphic and animal features. Um, The intertwining refers both to the the duality, animal and human, but also the ways that these two figures are not entirely separated, and they share a catch in their mouths. The hands on hip positioning and lean of the figure to the right, which recalls the posture of a model, um, suggests a repose that invites us to see this intertwining as calm and collaborative. The second figure, however, whose hand rests on this figure um, and face leans away suggests perhaps a more conflictual and antagonistic relation. Is this figure pushing against or propping up? There is always an instability to Muthu's assemblages that reveal the violences from which her figures are constructed. For instance, does the spotting on the figure represent a form of self-adornment that recalls celestial bodies, or is it a discoloration that suggests disease? As Michael Veal has noted, um, the beings that Mithu Im- imagines are survivors of all the violence and, and material and psychic toxins dumped upon their b- bodies and environs. In these ways, her figures embody uh, an aesthetics of fractured assembly. Figures such as um, these uh, from the 2004, for work patrician's curse are decomposed and recomposed rather than intact and singular they are constituted by other beings both human and non-human wheels heels sculptural pedestals and claws are both forms of embellishment and serve as the prosthetic extensions and connections of these figures these prostheses serve as the collective links of the figure's composite constitution. They form and they extend the body. We might see these figures as embodiments of the practices of operators that Professor Descola has illuminated in his lectures. These figures are literally constituted by operators that conjoin and dis- disjoin assembled from parts of human bodies, organic and inorganic matter, taking animal and human form. The the body here is imagined as a collective that is composed out of ontological difference. Zakia Iman Jackson has argued that Mutu's compositions draw on the natural sciences, especially marine biology, zoology, and botany in ways that uh, especially probe um, connections between the female body, femininity, and nature. Her collaged figures are, Jackson notes, distinct in the ways that their conspicuous madness and artificiality is both magnified and embraced. This is not simply a form of willed and willful self-making. That is, these figures do not reinforce a Promethean story in which we are sovereign agents who can compose and decompose ourselves out of the materials of human, non-human, and inorganic matter. Instead, in Jackson's readings, these are figures produced through mutation understood as that radical alteration in the interstices of chance and design, a process that is not ours because it necessarily involves a degree of randomness, or, in other words, mutation exploits the unpredictable and and the limits of human control. The language of mutation might offer one way of thinking through the confrontation between the cosmopolitics of the extra-modern and the forces of modernization. In discussing the confrontation, for instance, between territory understood as a singular relationship between humans and nonhumans unfolding in a milieu and territory and territory as a Westphalian claim of exclusive use, Professor Descola asked yesterday, at what point will the disappearance of some of the components of the body territory make its survival impossible? perhaps we might think also about what kind of mutations are constituted in this unequal confrontation what emerged from the what might emerge from the adoption adaptation of certain techniques of westphalian boundary making what new assemblages emerge and how are, and how might operators be reconfigured This is neither to minimize the real violent destruction of the relations enacted through the living forest, nor to insist glibly on the resilience of life worlds. It is instead to probe how cosmopolitics mutate, reassemble, and reconstitute themselves to ask about their transformation over time ultimately my wider purpose in this in this is to is to ask if we might think the cyborgian figures of muthu's aesthetic practice as one instance of a practice of assemblage emanating from the extra as in excessively modern alongside the cosmopolitics of the extra modern as in those at the margins of the modern thank you Thank you all for,
1: for coming and for the very generous treatment uh, we've received here at, uh, at Berkeley. Um, so for my comment today, I wanted to build a bit on what I said yesterday, but turn a little bit more squarely to Professor Descala's idea of moving beyond the modernist concept of a solely human-generated society, and instead embrace what he is terming the collective. The idea that the essential traits of both humans and non-human groups emerge primarily from the ways in which these organisms interact uh, with each other. And as he notes, one of the defining traits of modernist peoples, and I'm quoting here, is their inability to integrate non-humans into collectives or to see non-humans as political subjects acting in their own collectives. Given that, it also seems reasonable to wonder if this inability might well be at the root of many of our contemporary problems. And if so, viable solutions to these problems must then begin with developing new ways of incorporating the non-human into our contemporary human collectives. So yesterday, I was sort of arguing that we could draw on some of the recent work of ethologists, biologists, et cetera, who have found these very human-like traits among uh, animals, uh, I thought Adam's illustrations sort of point towards that kind of concept. And I think, too, she reminded me of Donna Haraway's idea of the cyborg as being all in this kind of lineage, um, that these would be useful ideas. They're certainly not identical to I- Anima's views, um, uh, but that nonetheless uh, would have the good effect of increasing our appreciation of and respect for non human animals, as well as our shared evolutionary roots. So that was Ken kind of my made yesterday. Today, I want to consider how we could embrace, how embracing that collective might also have the surprisingly salutary effect of decreasing our estimation of ourselves. So, on the one hand, we're sort of raising other non human animals and organisms up. Now, let's consider how we might reduce our own status in our eyes. And somewhere in between, I wondered if we might find something that I'm calling a collective humanism. Um, So to do this, I suspect we must expand beyond recognizing a manner of shared humanness with a small group of mammals and birds. Or I was just reading this on the, uh, the airplane over here. And again, so as I was saying, I was reading this on the plane relatively recent edition of Science, where we're expanding that even to to vertebrates like fish, who apparently can show empathetic behaviors. Um, But we would also need to explore how the human collective emerges from our engagement with a much wider biotic and abiotic world, including organisms like bacteria, viruses that are radically different than humans. And even things that we typically think as inanimate, which is to say water, rocks, minerals, but also tools, buildings, machines, technologies. How can we incorporate those into our collectivities is one of the things I wanted to interrogate here. Now, if we do so, would we to imagine a much more modest and obviously less anthropocentric humanism, one that emphasizes what Gibson called the material affordances that help to create and sustain the human, to be sure, there is a long, and there's long been a careful and more circumspect version, more modest version of humanism, one that emphasizes, emphasizes our weaknesses. Yet humanism and the humanities have also often assumed that there was something uniquely special about their subjects of study. As the historian Daniel Lord Smale demonstrates, the roots of this run very deep. Humanists, at least in their iteration as historians, have long labored in the shadow of what Smale calls sacred history, a religiously rooted faith that we are creatures of mind, spirit, and soul, destined to reshape and transcend this merely material earth. Ironically, this anthropocentric neglect of the non-human also pervaded the modern capitalist system and its closely related consumerist culture. It's a cliche today to condemn the modern world for being too materialistic. Yet from the perspective of Professor Descola's collective, you could very well argue that we're the least genuinely materialist creatures to ever walk the planet. Indeed, our modernist capitalist system conspires to encourage an utter lack of care and respect for the things and organisms that we exploit, what we might think of as a bizarre new age of immaterialism. We throw things away almost as quickly as we buy them, showing little interest in where they have come from or where they will go, much less how they shape who we are as creatures. Likewise, with the no- notable exception of our domestic pets, few, have, few of us have any regular interactions with other intelligent social animals, like horses and cows, that have once been woven into the very fabric of everyday lives. In this new age of immaterialism, we largely ignore or tolerate the brutal mistreatment of billions of pigs, chicken, cattle that we consume, all in the name of saving a few dollars on our grocery bills. This is why I was so intrigued and heartened by Professor d'Escola's examples yesterday of what, by contrast, seemed to me to be far more deeply materialist peoples, these collectives, the Sasha Runa, People of the Ecuadorian Amazon, for example, in their attempts to grapple with the depredations of climate change by creating the Kauska Sasha, the living forest, a domain and here, quoting Professor Descola, entirely composed of living beings and the communicative relationships that these beings maintain. Clearly, the Sasha Runa don't think that they invent themselves alone. Rather, their essential nature emerges from, quote, the material and spiritual relationship that they weave with other beings that inhabit the living forest. Given this, I wonder if it would ever have occurred to the Sascha runa that they were in need of something akin to the humanities and humanism. Or to extend Professor Descola's earlier definition of modernists as societies incapable of incorporating the non-human, might a corollary be that only such a modernist society would develop something so strange as the humanities. So to pause there for a second, I do recognize all too well that the humanities are already under siege from a variety of different quarters. I earn my living as a humanist. I'm not in the least trying to speed their demise. Rather, it seems to me that Professor Descala's concept of the collective might help us to imagine a new manner of humanism that is both more capable and useful and resilient and better able to resist the barbarians at the gate, as it were. You're not going to be surprised that, once again, I am going to point to both the sciences and the humanities as a possible bridge and adjunct to what we might learn from the animus peoples that uh, we've been hearing about. But you're all familiar, of course, with the idea of the microbiome. But what I find quite fascinating about this is that some scientists have argued that considering the microbiome, um, humans are best understood not as discrete subjects, but rather as akin to symbiotic superorganisms, something like a coral reef. More broadly, recent developments in the socio-ecological concept of human niche construction also challenge conventional modernist distinctions between the brain, the body, and the non-human environment. As the historian Edmund Russell argues, humans and non-humans alike build niches with other things and organisms, which then in turn serve to create, sustain, and define them, somewhat like the woven fabrics of animus life that Professor Descola describes. The evolutionary biologist, Kevin LeLand argues for what he calls an extended evolutionary synthesis that better incorporates niche construction, culture, and learned behaviors under the umbrella of evolution. In this framing, human culture emerges as we engage not only with biotic plants and animals, but also with volcanoes and rivers, and even cities and machines. And finally, I think. Um, And most broadly, some philosophers of cognition, like Andy Clark, argue for what he calls an extended mind, suggesting that even our seemingly most abstracted ideas and thoughts are, and I'm quoting here, best understood as the activity of an essentially situated brain, a brain at home in its proper bodily, cultural, and environmental niche. Finally, these and other similar insights resonate with developments in a variety of different corners of the humanities. The one that I'm most familiar with that I'll briefly mention is the new materialism, which I think offers a set of theories and methods that are very different than the constructive, constructivist postmodernist views that dominated in the humanities over the last half century. While it is a somewhat uh, ill-defined and contentious field, I would argue that at its core, the new materialism emphasizes the essential materiality of humans, not just in the well-understood sense that we are biological organisms embedded in complex ecologies, but also because our thoughts, ideas, and cultures emerge in significant part from our engagement with a vibrant material world, to use Jane Bennett's evocative term. Importantly, the new materialism doesn't seek to negate the postmodern insights into the power of narrative, but rather to deepen that analysis by recognizing how these emerge from and are reproduced in the non-human material environment, what I and others have termed a sort of deep culture. Which is all to say, I think there's an intriguing and hopefully useful resonance between these novel scientific and humanistic ideas and Professor Descola's concept of the collective. Indeed, that all these insights are emerging in our current historical moment might well, very, well, very well confirm the generative power of the non-human world that they seek to study. Consider that it's been three years since a virus, the smallest if perhaps not, not the most humble of organisms, nearly brought the planet to its knees, Or that it's been several decades now since climate scientists demonstrated that our addiction to a particular set of abiotic things, coal, oil, hydrocarbons, was leading us towards disaster. Yet despite these warnings, our sclerotic and self-obsessed ways of thinking seem to have left us ill-prepared to effectively grapple with them. But of course, to diagnose the malady is not to suggest a cure. And with a few minutes left to me, I wanted to briefly engage the critical question Professor Descola raised. What is to be done? What kind of cosmopolitics might emerge from more deeply embracing the collective nature of the human animal? I don't pretend to have the answers. I'm hoping that during our discussion day, Professor Descola might tell us more about how we might draw on animus insights to reshape modernity. In terms of the more modest goal of developing a new humanism, I'm encouraged that that there are opportunities to build on rather than abandon earlier humanistic methods of analysis and critique. As already suggested, the utility of postmodernist constructivism can be strengthened by a more materially rooted deep culture approach. Or we might consider a very different and powerful intellectual tradition, perhaps a sort of extended Marxist synthesis, a dialectical new materialism now informed by the developing understanding of the creative power of the material world, ideas which scholars like Jason Moore, among others, have already begun to explore. So to conclude, I think. Professor Descola's concept of the collective could indeed offer a powerful means of reimagining the nature of humanism and the humanities. Such a collective humanism would, I think, fully and gladly embrace the human removal from the ontological center of the cosmos in favor of a deeper recognition of our essential evolutionary material and cognitive continuum with other, other organisms and things. For the many urban-dwelling technological humans, this would especially require a much deeper appreciation for abiotic things, interrogating the role of the buildings we live in, the cars we drive, and the goods we purchase, how they shape our collective. And here I was hoping Professor Descola might tell us more about the animus relation to artifacts like tools, weapons, and structures What role do these non-living things play in their emergent collectivities? What role does the making and building of things play versus the modernist dependence on mass-produced consumer goods? Does Does that make any difference? Finally, I wanted to briefly share that we had an interesting convergence of worlds at dinner last night when we were joined unexpectedly by a friend of David's the prominent computer scientist uh, Jaron Lanier, who just had a new piece in the New Yorker, if you happen to see it. And Jaron was a pioneer of virtual reality and computer technology digital advancement. I thought it was intriguing that on one side of the table sat Professor Descola, who has taught us about this collective formed of humans and non-humans. On the other was Dr. Lanier whose work points us towards a new age of virtual reality that would, one might think, seem to be the height of immateriality. The table was very noisy. I don't think there was a chance for Professor Descola and Dr. Lanier to talk. But in this aborning age of artificial intelligence, of chat GPTs, I did wonder what Professor Descola thought about our chances of recapturing a more materially engaged collectivity in this very fraught moment. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks again for for having me over and for including me in these discussions. Thanks for tolerating the the gate crashing of of dinner. yesterday. And um, yeah, I, I thought I'd just pick up more or less where I left off yesterday. Um, I asked uh, a bit unfairly, because it wasn't uh, a direct focus of, of Philippe's talks, whether perhaps we've been overhasty in welcoming the archaeological discovery of ancient cosmopolities of magnificent scale below the canopy of the Amazon rainforest. And no doubt such findings should be welcomed as a kind of redemption, as Philippe put it, of of this whole region from this uh, state of nature and from the logic of naturalism that was imposed on it by settlers, thus denying its true historicity and reimagining it instead as a wild or uncultured, landscape of resources without people, or with very few people, to be extracted or destroyed for profit. As it turns out, this also meant denying the co-agency of humans and non-humans in creating these very landscapes in the first place, which as we've known now for some decades turn out to be based quite often upon anthropogenic soils, the famous terra preta de indio, dark earths with carrying capacities well in excess of ordinary tropical soils. These are humanly produced soils which owe their fertility to the absorption of organic byproducts from everyday village life extending back over centuries or even millennia. It would surely be a tragic irony if the result of all these findings was simply to gain Amazonia a few extra rungs on the ladder of progress that leads to cities, state formation, and civilization in the Western sense, thereby placing them back in the logic of naturalism and the transition from nature to culture." I was wondering if one way around this dilemma might be to historicize and problematize the origins of naturalism itself as an ontological lens, which gained focus precisely through the encounters between Europeans and non-Europeans, including Native Americans, from the 15th century onwards. And this point, I should add, was already made Uh, at least 70 years ago by the French historian Paul Hazard in his seminal work, which in English is called The Crisis of the European Mind, 1680 to 1715. One of Philippe's very reasonable justifications for focusing his Tanner lectures on the topic of animism is that he knows it best, Following the same wonderfully instrumental logic, I will now shift ground at this point to a case study uh, in the kind of historical exercise I'm talking about, which I explored in my book with David Graeber, The Dawn of Everything, and then I'll come back uh, to more questions about Amazonia. Towards the end of that book, we talked about the ancient Native American city of Cahokia, which lies on the outskirts of the modern city of East St. Louis. About a year ago, I visited uh, the site of Cahokia with a small group of friends and archaeologists and noticed something uh, that I found striking. If you walk up to the top of Monk's Mound, which is a huge pyramid constructed of intricate layers of earth now covered in grass, and you look over towards East St. Louis, you feel like uh, you're sort of looking in a, in a mirror. You see something that looks very much like a mirror image of what you're standing on. But actually, what you're looking at is the landfill from East St. Louis, where all the toxic crap and refuse gets dumped and accumulates, forming a sort of pyramid, similar dimensions uh, to the ancient one that you're standing on. And it occurred to me that the two mounds uh, could be regarded in some ways as the sort of physical culmination of two different, I don't know if they're ontological frameworks, but at least two different styles of life. which uh, I don't know why, but the, you know the word terraforming popped into my head, and of course it's completely inappropriate because it's meant to refer to uh, uh, what goes on on a foreign body, like another planet or a, a moon. Uh, what has to be done to a foreign uh, uh, Planet, in order to make it habitable for humans to live on. But actually, there are interpretations of Cahokia which suggest that the indigenous builders who raised up a city from the swamplands of the American bottom from roughly 1000 AD to the year 1350 thought about what they were doing in exactly those kinds of terms the creation of a highly structured and celestially ordered cosmopolity out of black mud and water, substances connected to a chaotic underworld unfit for humans to dwell in. As for the modern landfill of East St. Louis, uh, I guess that could also be thought of as a kind of internal terraforming, or maybe terraforming in reverse, rendering large parts of the landscape permanently uninhabitable for human life, or indeed, for almost any form of life, in order to sustain a city made up of human beings who have effectively, in practice, renounced the earth they live on as a long-term partner in the business of making a living. I'm not having a go particularly at the people of East St. Louis. (laughs) You'd be talking about any city you like, more or less. Uh, We might be tempted, then, to idealize Cahokia somewhat, as a sustainable alternative to the naturalist and extractive logic of the modern city. But in truth, the Monk's Mound was not just a cosmological pivot of the four quarters, but also a kind of surveillance platform from which it is thought that ancient Mississippian elites achieved a remarkable degree of control over their subjects, who probably numbered in the tens of thousands. According to archaeological reconstructions, or at least some of them, a calculated effort was made to resettle foreign populations in newly designed thatch houses arranged in neighborhoods around smaller plazas and earthen pyramids. From the summit of Monk's Mound, the city's ruling elite enjoyed powers of surveillance over these planned residential zones, and at the same time existing villages and hamlets in Cahokia's hinterland were disbanded and the rural population dispersed, scattered in homesteads of just one or two families. What's so striking about this pattern is its suggestion of an almost complete dismantling of any self-governing communities outside the city. For those who fell within its orbit, it seems there was nothing much left between domestic life lived under constant surveillance from above, and the awesome spectacle of the city itself, which included the performance of human sacrifices, mass executions, often of young women, and their burials carried out in public. Moreover, the influence of the Cahokian cosmopolity extended far beyond that part of the uh, Mississippi Basin called the American Bottom, arguably almost as far north, as the Great Lakes region. During the 11th and 12th centuries, Mississippian sites with links of various kinds to Cahokia appear everywhere from Virginia to Minnesota, often in aggressive conflict, it seems, with their neighbors. Now, whatever Cahokia represented in the eyes of those under its sway, it seems to have ended up being overwhelmingly rejected by the vast majority of its people. For hundreds of years after its demise in the late 14th century, the site where the city once stood and hundreds of miles of river valleys around it lay entirely devoid of human habitation, a vacant quarter, a bit like the uh, forbidden zone of Pierre Boulle's uh, Planet of the Apes, place of ruins, bitter memories. Charles Dickens actually visited the place and described it I quote, as an unbroken slough of black mud and water. In The Dawn of Everything, David Graeber and I argued that it was precisely the rejection of the Cahokian cosmopolity, including the forms of esoteric knowledge expressed in its calendrical monuments that laid foundations for the kinds of societies eventually encountered by European invaders a couple of centuries later in the territories that anthropologists refer to as the Eastern Woodlands. These were indigenous societies that long before the arrival of Europeans have moved away Disobeyed and reorganized themselves into political orders of an entirely different kind. Small towns, about the size of a typical Greek polis, a few hundred people with egalitarian clan structures, communal council houses, women's freedoms, as well as highly sophisticated cultures of consensus, decision making, and participatory democracy that were obviously a complete anathema to the Jesuit missionaries who sought their conversion? How are you going to explain the Ten Commandments to people who don't give each other commands um, or don't obey them, anyway? Um, I'm not going to go into it here, but uh, a key argument of our book is that the very notion of human politics as originating in a state of nature, whether it's a Hobbesian one or a a Rousseauian uh, type was established in European thought, at least partly, through the shock of such encounters. And to quote Paul Hazard, the crisis of the European mind, a mind long wedded to hierarchy, patriarchy, and revealed religion, that were precipitated by such encounters and by the indigenous critiques of European civilization that they generated. What we refer to in the book as indigenous critique, like those frequently reported in the Jesuit relations, are obviously not world views. But neither, I think, are they expressions of rival ontological frameworks of the kind explored by Philippe in these lectures. I suggest they may be better regarded as intellectual weapons of choice, Weapons of choice selected by indigenous thinkers and commentators to repel a very specific ideological threat, which at that time I think was really not naturalism, but rather a sort of imperialistic form of Christian analogism. In Europe, the result was, among many other things, obviously the creation of a huge intellectual apparatus, which we've now come to know as the Age of Enlightenment, having largely purified it of all the cultural cross-currents and indigenous critiques and mestizo-logics, as jean loup Amcel calls them, that undoubtedly were a key part of its making. This is getting complicated, Uh, so I want to finish with a question or two to Philippe. Do you think uh, we might, one day, maybe quite soon, uh, be able to begin reconstructing a similar kind of deep history for Amazonia, which brings together the evidence of archaeology, anthropology, and colonial encounters, and contemporary forms of critique, into something like a unified framework, which also allows us to better understand the intellectual roots both of naturalism, and perhaps even of animism in its modern forms. And then another question just occurred to me, and I'm sorry, Philippe, if you've answered this a thousand times in other places, and it's just my ignorance or forgetfulness, but is there, is there a basic difference or inconsistency among the four modes of identification, animism, totemism, analogism, and naturalism, insofar as only the latter has a traceable history and point of origin, um, as implied, I guess, by the overarching binary distinction that we're all using between moderns and extra-moderns. And if so, then why is that? In other words, why isn't there more naturalism in human history? Uh, that's all. Thank you.
3: Well, thanks again to the Dana uh, uh, committee, to... Uh, uh, all those who made this uh, series of uh, meeting uh, possible, uh, uh, Jane Fick in particular, <laughs> and uh, the members of the Tanner Committee, the commentators, and the University of Berkeley. Um, thank you in particular for your very uh, 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 thoughtful comments. Uh, i won 't be able to uh answer uh, either the straightforward question that some of you have asked or uh, even the hidden questions but i'll try to uh, uh, say a few things about your your comments um, i'm to be, and i 'll follow the order of the presentations uh I want to thank uh, Adam for bringing uh, into the uh, 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 into the topic. The work of uh, Wangeshimutu, which has, in fact, uh, interested me for a while, and uh, I will try to explain why. Uh, she, um, in in a book I published in uh, 2021 called Le, "Les Formes Visible, the forms of visib- of the of the visible, which is being translated now into English, um, I uh, developed among other uh, uh, ideas. Uh, the uh, the The hypothesis that um, uh, image makers uh, and, and th- this term is broad enough to cover any form of making images that is artists but also uh, uh, cave painters or whatever uh, not to uh, uh, use precisely uh, uh an or uh, 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 a uh, 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 naturalist uh, definition of what uh, image making is, um, uh, that image makers, uh, in a way, are uh, prefigure transformations into uh, f- the forms of worlding. And this has appeared to me very clearly when looking at the images of the beginning of the 15th century in Europe, where long before uh, naturalism was expressed in, uh, in in words, in texts, in the 17th century by Descartes, by Galileo, by Bacon, etc., uh, image makers, two centuries before, already presented uh, in a very distinct form the basics of what is naturalism. That is the centrality of human uh, interiority, subjectivity, by the painting of the, of the soul, which, which, which uh, already in the work of people like uh, Robert Campin uh, at the beginning of uh, the 15th century attains a, a, a mastery which is very uh, 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 impressive. And the and the, and the and the description of nature or the invention of nature uh, as a rep, a figurative representation, or uh, based on the emulation of uh, human vision, which is a very specific way of figuring beings and things and, scene, and scenes, uh, uh, because it's based. Uh, as Panofsky has shown quite well, on the imposition of a subjective point of view in order to reach an objective definition on what is an organization of the world uh, structured by mathematical laws. And um, uh, but even beyond the invention of perspective, uh, which is the, what was the, the, the objective, uh, I mean the, the the topic of Panofsky's uh, analysis uh, of this objectific, objectification of a subjective point of view uh, in the northern paintings in in Flanders in northern France etc. Uh, uh, painters precisely like again Robert Campin and of course later on Van Eyck um, uh, uh, organized the world in such a way as to prefigure what is a natural system so in that respect uh, you can we can see uh in the in the, the in the in the images uh the future accomplishment of naturalism uh which will be uh again uh thematized in uh, in text in discourse uh, uh two uh, uh centuries uh, after that, but in the same way that the image makers prefigured naturalism in images, they uh, prefigured something that we can 't really completely grasp now, which is an uh, overcome of naturalism in a direction which is still very difficult to figure and uh, this is why I became interested in a number of painters or image makers, among them Wangeshimutu Mutu, precisely. Because as you very well explained, what she produces are forms of hybrids that are very difficult to pinpoint. Uh, they do not belong to a specific uh, figurative regime that w- could be called naturalist. And there are a number of image makers uh, uh, of that kind. I'm thinking of a French uh, 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 artist by the name of Pierre Huyghe, who is also extremely interesting because he he realizes installations that are uh, a combination of nature and culture in many respects. They are artifacts. They are are, uh, he uses Um, uh, uh, sculpture, uh, uh, bees, uh, 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 a very peculiar mechanism which is, which selects images out of the development of a sequence of cancer cells, for instance. So it's, uh, it, it cannot be pinpointed either to nature or to culture or to any uh, 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 academic uh, uh, canon. And these attempts by image makers uh, precisely uh, allow us to grope in the dark towards new forms of worlding that are taking place now. And Wangishimutu is one of these uh, uh, image makers. And I'm very glad that you mentioned it. Also, uh, I want to come back to, the, to your initial point, of, uh, 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 that is the, the fact that uh, naturalism is also a, a, a means uh, to uh, scale people on the nature-culture uh, axis. Uh, this is a point that was well made by someone I mentioned uh, uh, yesterday, Jacques Rancière, uh, when he, uh, he, 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 he very clearly uh, shows that uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's a squirrel. Uh, uh, Pursuing a magpie, so it's interesting. We have a, a, a further audience now here. <laughs> uh, when Rancière uh, um, uh, shows that, uh, in fact, nature culture is is not on it, it's a, it's it's a dichotomy, but it's also it's also a scale that people are. Uh, 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 dif- occupy different uh, places on this scale and of course uh, uh um, non-modern or indigenous people uh, women uh uh workers uh are near uh nature while uh, thought of as near nature while uh, white europeans uh landowners etc etc are on the cultural uh, the, the, on the cultural side of the hierarchy, so this is uh, indeed uh, a thing which has been uh, going on for quite a while and uh, um, uh, the dissolution or the transformation of naturalism uh, appears as an important objective in order to go beyond these forms of Discrimination and uh, value judgments uh, that are a part of naturalism. There is a moral dimension to naturalism uh, and political dimension to naturalism, uh, which, uh, uh, as you mentioned in the specific case you brought, um, uh, which uh, causes much, uh, which has been, well, Terribly violent um, so yes, looking towards images for finding new, for new operators, I think is is, is an interesting uh, 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 project. Um, now i'll turn to the idea of becoming more materialists. <laughs> which uh, uh, I, I find uh, interesting. Um, I, I completely agree that uh, in the, 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 the sciences, the, the natural sciences, as in particular geology, ecology, ethology, have uh, completely transformed the way that we see uh, this set of affordances uh, that were, Uh, thought for a long time uh, to be a a, a, a limited uh, set, and opening up uh, the picture towards things that are more complex, like human niche construction. I'll I'll go back to human niche construction about the Amazon, precisely, because that's a very good case of human niche construction. In the sense that all uh, living organisms construct their niche, which they transfer to their uh, descendants in a way. So, uh, and, and humans are not uh, uh, different in that respect, which means, uh, and it's a very, uh, it's, it's, it's an important point for me because when I started, when, uh, when I went uh, to Amazonia uh, for field work, uh, the, my idea was to, Uh, try to understand the forms of adaptation and socialization by a society of its environment. And what I uh, uh, figured out after fieldwork is is that it was a completely uh, (laughs) misconceptualized objective to begin with because uh, it, 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 it implied the idea that Uh, Society is a a closed form that is uh, parachuted into an environment. Well, it became obvious, uh, and I'll come back to that later, uh, that uh, this environment had been patiently uh, constructed, although not necessarily in an intentional form, but over the millennia. uh, so there was, so the, the question of adaptation is one of the, it, there's a paradox here, because uh, I, I'm uh, wary of, the, of this concept of adaptation because of its automatism. But at the same time, we are facing with climate change and with the uh, broad ecological uh, destruction Uh, and devastation of the Earth, a situation where we have to adapt precisely. So at the same time that I understand that adaptation is not uh, an ideal concept uh, and has to be criticized, at the same time, we have to bring in uh, in, in, or or to activate it in in a different way Uh, because uh, it it implies our survival as a species, you know, uh, in in, in dark circumstances. Um, So they, but it's true that emphasizing human niche construction or emphasizing the part of the uh, microbiote in humans uh, is a, 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 a very uh, uh, interesting way of uh, uh, dissolving uh, the, the dichotomy of uh, human and non-human. Uh, uh, the what part of us uh, is really human uh, when we think of the kind of assemblage of which we are made, and uh, what kind of what part of us in fact, fosters the ideas that we, that we uh, use in order to understand the world uh, are the trillions of bacteria uh, that we uh, uh, shelter uh, part of this process and part of our subjectivity uh, probably uh, in ways that we still don't know very well so i think this this materialism this form of materialism is uh, extremely uh, important what is to be done of oh, knowledge 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 uh, <laughs> in a place like here it's it's obvious no uh, uh at the same time uh, although uh, as i said uh, i i'm politically involved in uh, in 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 movements uh, that uh, try to claim a, 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 a new use of the land. Um, social scientists, as such, are ill prepared to prescribe solutions. Uh, uh, what they can do is point out uh, uh, solutions, like like David did, uh, uh, point out solutions that people have invented at uh, some time. Um, to, uh, uh, like in Cahokia, for instance, uh, uh, to uh, 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 do away with forms of political organization that were uh, considered and and as as uh, as uh, in in, in um, and and from these experiences. As you do in your in the book with uh, with the David Greber, uh, uh, try to imagine alternative ways of um, uh, being in the world. And so uh, the question I don't think it the question can be transposed as 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 Timothy has as, as, as asked uh, how can we can we learn. Uh, how to deal with artifacts from an animist point of view. Um, I think we we are all able to make animist inferences. And uh, in certain circumstances, when we speak to a cat or to a rose tree or to when we uh, are furious against our computer, as I am right now because it doesn't work, <laughs> uh, we, we tend to... Uh, 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 impute an intentionality in, in the case of artifacts. Very often, a, a malevolent intentionality to uh, artifacts. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that we are animists. It means that the the basic kind of inference that is uh, the, 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 the 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 staple. Type of inference for animism is present in every one of us, but we don't stabilize it in an animist system in a certain, in a way. So, to answer the question uh, ethnographically, artifacts are imbued with life more or less in uh, in animist systems. No, a blowgun. a sledge, for instance, uh, uh, cases like that, uh, uh, they, they, they go against their owner uh, in some circumstances when they feel they've been mistreated. Um, and of course, they, it's part of the idea that the, the artifacts have a very close relationship with the person, the human, who uses them. And so that's one of the reasons why people are buried with their artifacts precisely, because no one else could use them. No one else could use the the spear or the shotgun or whatever or the the knife or the machete that one uses, because they would not accept to be uh, 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 manipulated by anyone else than the person uh, who was there uh, uh, owner or tamer, perhaps, uh, since they are imbued with life. Um, and it's uh, among the Ashwa, for instance, if you uh, if you lend someone an artifact, uh, and you are uh, you, you you can't refuse someone asking for something among the among many. In many collectives, no, uh, uh, especially those that are governed by uh, the gift, by 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 sharing. Uh, and so, if an Atua asks you, "Will you lend me your your axe and uh, that you do it, but internally grumbling because you need it also, uh, the the result will be that the the person using the axe will. Uh, Experience and ache, for instance, no, it, it will suffer from using this, this uh, because the the axe uh, uh, transmits the uh, uh, the the lack of uh, of the, the mixed attitude of the person who landed it. Um, so, it's. Uh, And all this has disappeared with the mercantilization of of things and the fetishism of of, uh, of commodity. Um, uh, uh, Is there a way to get back to this? That would be interesting. Uh, 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 We we don't know if we have to eliminate uh, commodity fetishism first. To do that, or whether this will eliminate commodity fetishism, that's mm-hmm. an interesting, and that's why I'm interested in the the, the what people uh, do in places like the Zad, de Notre Dame des Landes because they there is an attitude towards artifacts precisely which is a very different from the one we're used to, uh, in the sense that they circulate uh, among people, uh, and they, in that respect. Uh, they have a certain kind of autonomy. Um, finally, um, I'm glad you brought the, the the question of the of Amazonia. Uh, it's on, not only a terra preta, as, as you as you mentioned. That is the fact that the the soils there are mostly, uh, in many places, anthropogenic. For the uh, they, so that, that the, the 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 biome, the the ecosystem, has been profoundly transformed. But also there is a process, which I observed among the Achuar, which is the fact that uh, uh, slash-and-burn cultivation means not only uh, planting uh, in gardens uh, crops that have been domesticated over the millennia, and there are many of them. Uh, they, In a a natural garden, there is about 50 different species of plants with many varieties, but that people also transplant uh, plants from the forest, which is a a thing which they have done initially in the process of domestication, that is of maintaining certain plants uh, uh, under uh, forest cover. Uh, And this is why these plants progressively uh, became domesticated. So what they do is they transplant plants from the forest, palm trees and uh, fruit trees. And of course, when the Sweden, when the garden is abandoned after a few years of cultivation, perhaps five or six years, uh, the uh, transplanted plants from the forest survive the encroaching forest that regain the space while the domesticated plants uh, disappear. And when you think of this process uh, in the long term, it means that the floristic composition of the forest uh, is completely transformed because there is a higher rate of plants that are useful to humans uh, in the forest because of this Process of transplantation, and so the, the 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 Amazonian forest is not a virgin forest; it's a cultivated forest in many respects. No, or it's the process; it's a result of a process of cultivation. And when we take uh, these phenomena into uh, account, then uh, we have the first steps, as you said. Uh, uh, with which to try and reconstruct uh, uh, historical, ecological uh, uh, evolution of the region, uh, which is a co-evolution of humans and their environments um, over the millennia. Although the forms of, uh, the actual forms of um, collectives that we observe uh, may be uh, very uh, different from those that were, uh, uh, that can be reconstructed. I mentioned that uh, yesterday from the traces uh, like this great earth uh, 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 mounds and and pyramids that are urban, what look like urban settlements that we that are being found now in uh, amazonia so uh, the the one has to take into account also that 90% of the uh, native amazonians were disappeared uh, in one century so it's it's mind boggling uh, imagine uh, any country uh, modern country uh, being reduced to 10% of its population in a very short period of time, in fact. So the transformation, the 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 the, 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 the collectives we see now, are remnants of a uh, um, of a, uh, of, a, uh, it, uh, of of a Rome, <laughs> which is hypothesized. Uh, it's uh, indeed it's a Middle Age of which we do not know the Rome as De Vistos very aptly said. Uh, reconstructing the Rome will be a very difficult uh, process because, um, again, the forms of collective that have survived uh, have adopted very different ways of, uh, of uh, um, uh, surviving uh, the encounter uh, with, the, with the Europeans. Uh, in particular, uh, it's well known that m- what are called now in the In the press, for instance, uh, uncontacted tribes are not uncontacted tribes. they were people who have be, been subjected to the uh, most atrocious violence during the rubber boom. Uh, they were enslaved, and of course they they are uh, uh, people who have fled and never to see a, a, a white person again, so they are uh, to use a, a bold image, like survivors of concentration camps that fled in the forest in order never to see their uh, their the, the the killers and the uh, um, the people who subjected them to uh, the kind of forced labor and violence they they uh, experienced. This is a. a, a this is well known for the recent past, that is, for the rubber boom. But it must have been like that for a, for a long time, for a long time. And so the, m- many of the institutions that we observe now are, have been transformed by this situation uh, since we have very little historical uh, record in order uh, that would allow to reconstruct this, uh, this past. Um, So finally, uh, you asked a a difficult question. Uh, Why uh, is naturalism the only uh, uh, way of worlding with a history? Uh, I think it's it's the invention of history by the naturalists was a a great thing which allowed uh, the durability and the ability to uh, expand uh, that other ways of worlding perhaps do not have, uh, and why did it did it, hap- did it happen once? I think it could have happened several times, uh, but it didn't uh, it didn 't work. It could have happened in the medieval uh, uh, Islam in the near East. it could have happened in uh, in China. It could have happened even earlier in Europe. In 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 Greece, there were elements there uh, that were identical, but for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out. So it it is an exception indeed. Uh, but an exception that could uh, have. Uh, and also, it's an exception that required something. Uh, to appear, it required an analogous system before. Yeah. Uh, uh, naturalism is a transformation of analogism and not only because it is so historically, uh, but also because uh, of some logical reasons for it. Uh, contrary to Bachelard, for instance, I don't think that uh, uh, modern physics uh, is, is a complete break up with uh, a physics of the senses or a physics of, uh, of qualities uh, in the sense that uh, the, uh, uh, the physics of qualities uh, is based on the idea, uh, on the analogist idea, that the world can be decomposed into elementary elements and that these elements can be combined in certain ways, that there's a regularity in this combination and in the outcome of the process uh, that this combination uh, produce. Uh, And this is, I think, a basis for modern physics or for uh, mathematical uh, physics uh, uh, in in that sense. And you you can't go from an animist physics, if you wish, uh, one based on metamorphosis uh, to uh, uh, mathematical uh, physics. But you can go from uh, a physics of sensible qualities to a mathematical physics because the basis are there, especially this idea uh, of the elementary components of the world that can be organized and reorganized uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, understood. As uh, having a regular behavior, oh. mm. <laughs> I'll, I think I'll uh, end up with this and uh, continue the discussion with the with the with the audience. <laughs> mm.
1: please do um, continue the discussion in the course of the questions uh, and answers uh, Jay uh, please wait uh, until the roving microphone
4: gets to you before speaking
5: okay um, I I guess I just want to go back to the question of uh, rethinking our relations or uh, to to physical aspects of the milieu that we inhabit, um, and, and just try to understand better what some of the alternative conceptions would really come to. And I'm just picking up on some themes that came up in the second uh, lecture and the discussion afterwards. Um, I think Philippe made a very, to my mind, very um, uh, apt comment about the the kind of cartoonish way f- moral philosophers, and I'm, I belong to this tribe myself, but have, have accommodated um, animals it, you know, in, in their moral conceptions, which is a, a process of kind of letting them into the club in some ways by attributing to them you know, qualities that we see in ourselves that we take to be the basis of moral standing in some, in some sense. That's Peter Singer's you know, expanded circle and so on. Um, and I, I, I'm, you know, I, I think there is something kind of um, odd about that way of conceiving things. We just presume a sort of status to ourselves, and we we bestow it on these other individuals by seeing them as like us in some ways. Uh, and that that may be very well be. You know, I'm open to the idea that there are radical alternative ways of seeing things that don't, you know, that that don't start from this questionable. Um, you know framework, and so on, but i, I was struck when it came to we start, we were talking about milieus yesterday and rivers, and we were talking about our relations to to those things um, kind of the the alternative frameworks that were offered seemed to me um, you know sort of very similar to the 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 processes of letting into the club that you were criticizing when it came to the animals i mean it, if 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 to reconceive our relationship to the the river is to bestow on it legal personhood. I mean, that really just seems like an example of of taking a, a juridical concept that we apply to ourselves and and you know allowing it application to new things that it didn't apply to before. It would be disappointing to me if if that was the way we ended up reconceptualizing our relation to the um, to the river to the milieu. Uh, and another thing that was mentioned in this con- context was um, that we might think of the, you know, the milieu as owning itself, right? And and maybe standing thereby in an ownership relationship uh, to us. And I, I was also troubled by this because it, it, it was redolent to me of the naturalist kind of classic early modern Lockean conception of property, right? Which is a matter of appropriation through mixing one's labor, and it's it's the most absurd theory in the history of philosophy, to be honest, but it assumes that we stand in natural ownership relationships to ourselves, and then we extend this to the natural world uh, through doing things with it. And I, I think it, we should just give it up, you know, even an application to um, our own relationship to the natural world. But, but if, if our transformed conception of milieu involves, you know, imputing to itself ownership, it seems like that's the wrong category. I would hope that the Encounter with animism would open up something more interesting as a way of reconceptualizing our, the, the kind of relationship that we stand in here, and, and I'm sure that it, it does have such resources. So maybe, maybe I could invite you to say a little bit more about that.
3: I'd say it's an interesting question because it poses the, the shall I go there or whichever you prefer? Wait, because it it poses the question of uh, what are the most uh, the more efficient tools in order to change. No, uh, if I mention this uh, this uh, trend uh, of uh, giving uh, legal personality to milieus. It's because precisely it's based on something which is familiar to us, in particular the Lockean conception that uh, because we own ourselves, we are in a position to exchange between uh, uh, human subjects, etc., etc. And and at the same time, uh, using it's uh, like uh, Aikido, no, using the strength of uh, something which is basic in our moral and political philosophy, uh, uh, in order to. uh, 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 transform it uh, uh, by uh, completely uh, uh, perverting the notion of of, of ownership precisely uh, and uh, attributing ownership to something which uh, on, on the face of it uh, 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 is, is not uh, predisposed to being a, a, an owner of itself although it, although there are cases of course in in, uh, in, uh, i mean the, the legal historians know that, uh, uh, that the fact that uh, 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 things can own themselves and own other things is is uh, something that was common in the ancient world, for instance uh, temples being uh, uh, owners of uh, of land etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, or deity in fact uh, uh, um, so I think it's 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 uh, it, it's not an end in itself, but it's a means, uh, and it's a means that can be uh, uh, that is useful in the sense that people can uh, 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 gather around an objective of this kind in a local struggle, for instance. No, if they instead of saying we want to protect this river against pollution, etc. Uh, 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 uniting uh, 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 around the, the, the idea of the goal of transforming this river into a political subject. But it's only a small step further. But the consequences uh, in terms of the conceptualization of property ownership uh, are uh, much wider. So I, I, I see that as a step, not as a General objective for transforming our ways of dealing with the world around us, but as a political step that is accessible uh, and and has already been uh, uh, achieved in in some places. You no, know. uh, uh, but I understand. Yes, the the idea. I've been discussing this with. Uh, I, I uh, the last book I wrote with a with a with a friend called it's a, it's called Eth- Ethnographies of World of Worlds to Come, <laughs> and uh, uh, we have had a and it's precisely a, a book that is uh, based on the idea that uh, anthropology and archaeology provide uh, uh, stimulations for imagining different worlds and. Uh, 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 and 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 the ways that uh, uh, indigenous people right now are uh, 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 fighting against the, uh, the, the the land grab to which they are submitted uh, provides in in the very uh, that's why I tried to show yesterday in the in the lecture in the way they conceptualize their struggle uh, and in the way they 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 try to to adapt to uh, the circumstances uh, interesting uh, uh, stimulating uh, ways of uh, 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 transforming our own political uh, 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 institutions no mm.
1: hey don or or timothy or david did you want to add anything I no? just a question more <clears throat> for you, Philippe. Mm. Does the person, or to you, Jay, as well, does the concept of person, I understand that it's primarily the motivation here is sort of a legal um, uh, device that's being used. But then, of course, does it go farther than that? A person obviously has agency. A person affects other people and other actors and might have a personality. and. A person could be good or bad or you know, evil. Even does that? Was that ever in the cards there at all? You know, well, legal, in thinking
3: about it, legal scholars will tell you there's not uh, there's there, there a huge difference between personhood and legal personality, uh, yeah. and it's true. But at the same time, uh, this does already exist in law, and since the law is the uh, uh, is the common uh, 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 language of our institutions. Uh, if we want to change them, uh, it's important to uh, subvert uh, these uh, 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 legal concepts uh, in order to transform our institutions. And this is why I'm quite interested in, in the process of legal personality being uh, conferred to uh, milieus. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, Uh, The the fact that that I mentioned yesterday that in Amazonia, territories are sort of bodies uh, uh, that relate to other bodies, neighboring uh, territories. I don't know if there is any notion of personal in in that respect in the sense that I don't think these bodies are uh, thought of as uh, uh, intentional agents, no? Uh, They are more... uh, like processes, uh, 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 vital processes uh, that any organism will uh, develop in order to sustain itself. And uh, in that respect, I don't think there is uh, any personhood implied. Uh, in But I may be mistaken, I don't know. The <laughs> Tibetans
6: have a term for that.
3: The, sorry? The Tibetans yes.
6: have a term for this. They call drama. Or, uh, Adrala is a, a sense of personality for a region, or a
3: milieu.
4: Yeah.
6: Philippe, I'm glad you brought up the Zod, um, notre dame de landes um, I was there for the, the first anniversary of the defeat of the airport construction project, and. It was an amazing, like, three-day party with a lot of evidence of um, commodity fetishism being um, thrown under the bus. Um, And um, yeah, it makes me wonder. I mean, I like how you you seem to be saying that there's a kind of a mutual exclusion or an antithesis between animism and commodity fetishism. And um, yeah, I've, I've wondered about that. And it seems like there's... There's there's a possible like um, mutual potentiation between the two. If, if you have struggles against commodity fetishism to protect land, um, animism could help those struggles along. And also, uh, and they, they do have a whole cult of this, like Newt at the Zod. Um, they have this enormous puppet that took like 100 people to mm-hmm. dance through the fields and all this. And there's a kind of a myth of, that they identify with this newt there. Um, yeah, anyway, I'd love to hear if you have more thoughts on any of that. Yeah.
3: I think that uh, new narratives are very important. Uh, we, 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 worlding is uh, based in our education and socialization on narratives that we hear and that uh, channel us in certain directions. And this uh, is it the case in any form of worlding, in particular in animism. So uh, when you hear, I was mentioning that this morning in a seminar with uh, graduate students in anthropology, when you hear uh, stories of uh, uh, hunters in your childhood that describe in very precisely what happened during the hunt, uh, the animals they've seen, the uh, 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 indexes. Uh, that allowed them to infer that in, in some place it wasn't an animal but perhaps a spirit, etc. It, it 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 renders uh, uh, an animist uh, f- form of worlding uh, uh, obvious. And when you grow old, you will seize all these indexes as forms of interpretation of uh, events in your life. So uh, the the question is, how do you do this? Pur- purposefully no, and uh, there are people in the uh, in the zad uh, who are trying to invent new rituals precisely in order uh, to create new uh, narratives uh, that would transform uh, that would accompany uh, the institutional uh, uh, shift that the zad represents in terms of sharing property and uh, sharing work and etc etc. I think it's difficult but it's it, it may be feasible uh, and uh, this is why uh, uh, images rituals narratives are an important part of this political process uh, and should not be discarded uh, uh, and I, I think that uh, it's it's not only uh, uh, image makers that uh, uh, Make us feel that something different is emerging, but also narratives. I'm thinking of uh, the great success of a writer like Richard Powers, for instance, uh, uh, and I think that it, it's the it's the, the, the it's a consequence of of uh, of the fact that so many people are dis discontent uh, with the present situation, and they find in narratives like that. Uh, a, a, a form of possible identification with the characters uh, in, in a novel. Uh, and, and even if it doesn't mean uh, mobilizing oneself in a, in, a, in, a, in a specific struggle, it means at least sharing an empathy uh, with the, the characters uh, in, a, in a narrative. So I think this is very important, yes. Uh, uh. Thank you.
2: Um, so I kind of have a very like specific question, but I want to ask um, everyone, but especially Philippe,, um, can race as like we understand it today, be understood only through naturalism as as an effect of naturalism and how conceptions of man becomes a, a means or a benchmark to measure? Other modes of being, whether it be being human, and um, yeah, that's my question.
3: I think so. I think that race is a product of naturalism, and uh, it's it, it's. Uh, I, I mean, the, we 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 evoke this, uh, uh, and uh, Adam uh, uh, evoked this in in a, a presentation. Uh, uh, in particular this uh, obsession with sc- scaling and uh, uh, marking uh, hierarchical differences uh, on, the, on the nature society uh, 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 scale, no? Um, the conceptions of humanity, this is an interesting thing. That's a. it's an interesting and, and puzzling and difficult thing because we are all, uh, aware of the benefits that we, uh, that were uh, the result of the philosophy of the enlightenment and of the idea that there is a, a, a humanity and there's a human nature and the, this human nature which was, which has been defined in very specific naturalist terms uh, is endowed with rights. And so we are not prepared to go to, to turn our back to that. Uh, But at the same time, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, about uh, uh, animism, humanity as a general concept is something very specific to naturalism. Uh, uh, For for, uh, uh, in in an animist regime, there is no such notion as humanity. As such, there are different tribe species again, each with their specific, uh, Habitat and dispositions, etc and so um, the, the very difficult and 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 tricky uh, uh, question is how do we retain the benefits of uh, uh, the, the idea that humans has specific rights because of a specific human nature that has been defined in the specific let's say cultural Form of worlding. How do we combine that with a, 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 a more pluralistic approach of what humans and non-humans are? And this is a, this is this is an an intellectual uh, 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 challenge, uh, and that is one that we need. They will need them. When, I mean, we, it, it, all, all people who are interested in these things during this century, will need to uh, think out uh, in order not to lose what was obtained, and but go beyond, on uh, based on uh, on different conceptions of humanity, precisely. Uh, so, um, so uh, that notion of race for. Uh, you, 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 there are trans- possible transpositions um I'm um uh, uh in animism uh, there are uh, different races of spirits for instance they are not they are tribe species they are not humans but they are defined as races with specific physical dispositions and uh, and uh, the forms of organization etc and even totemism is 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 uh, is a uh, uh in fact, the, the idea that your identity is derived from a prototype uh, uh, that left uh, seeds of identity on the surface of the Earth, uh, and which means that you, are, uh, you belong to a specific kind of being that is derived from these seeds of identity that includes humans and non-humans alike, is, is 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 different of course from the notion of race as we know it because it's hybrid it implies humans and non-humans but i think the general pattern is that it, it there are different races but the, the extraordinary thing about uh, totemism is that in australia uh, uh, at least it, the, what is uh, uh, implied in totemism is that these different races must collaborate and uh, and in fact, uh, exchange uh, spouses in order to uh, produce uh, uh, new races, you know, uh, in a way. So it's the, exactly the contrary of uh, racism in as, as, as we know it. You know. Uh, it the, there are ontological differences that need, uh, uh, and these ontological differences are complementary uh, uh, and not exclusively of each other Mm.
4: did anyone else want to respond to that no Uh, yeah
2: Yeah. I don't know if I'm Um, going to partially disagree maybe Um, I'm quite convinced personally by um, uh, by the arguments of Cedric Robinson for example that race actually emerges out of feudalism in the sense of aristocratic uh, bloodlines, and is then transformed under capitalist uh, labor regimes into something uh, more like its modern biological form. But I I certainly partially disagree, because you just said earlier that naturalism must be a transformation (laughs) of uh, analogism, um, Mm -hmm. which uh, would uh, be compatible, I guess, uh, with that, if I understand you correctly.
3: I was very struck by uh, uh, the, there's a, uh, it's, it's an article, I can't remember the author now, uh, uh, which, uh, about uh, a black person in uh, Venezuela during the colonial period, um, and there was an incident and so they, they they described in detail the incident, but at, at no time in the in the judgment uh, about this in incident, it's mentioned that he is black. So it's only by circumstantial evidence that it was uh, discovered that this person was black, and at no at no at no uh, uh, and, and in spite of this, the obsession with that the, that the. The Spaniards had with the castas no that is with the distinction between racial distinctions with the how they were uh, the product of uh, mixed marriage etc there were i don 't know fifty four castas or something like this, so there was a classificatory obsession at the time, but the classificatory obsession did not mean. Uh, in particular that it had uh, uh, social or political consequences wait well, it had of course you no know, uh, because the, the, the slaves were black no but someone engaging into a, an interaction in i think it was at church um, uh, could be described uh, under many uh, guises but not as uh, on the basis of his race, so it's. Uh, but you're you, you're probably right. I mean, there's a there, there's a history of, uh, of constitution, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, and uh, but it was amplified, of course, immensely by the classificatory obsession, of um, uh, of of. Well, the colonial Spain in Venezuela was very much still an an uh, uh, analogist formation. They they were not really, they were not much naturalist in that that respect, no? Uh,
0: I mean, maybe just to add one other name I've invoked over the two responses would be Sylvia Winter, who maybe tells a slightly different story than Cedric Robinson. One, I think, you know, for her, this exactly the point you're making, Philippe, which is about the simultaneous revolution of and birth of something called humanity, which she does think is something to be celebrated. And the ways that came entangled with this hierarchization is is the central problematic for her about trying to recuperate something called the human. But she thinks the first version of it in 1492 was about. You know the difference wasn't biological race, not naturalism, but religion, right? And we talked about this, uh, you know, the the those who were not Christian, right? Um, So for her, there's these various stages or transformations of the humanist project um, that that I think corresponds to the story you're telling about the gradual triumph of naturalism, um, and one in in which race, over the course of that gradual triumph, does become a biologized conception by the 19th century. So there's this, I don't know, important, I think, historicization or transformation of race um, that, for her, does always signal signal something like non-human, but what the terms of that non-humanity are are shifting across this this period of time. Mm-hmm.
4: Just wanted it is somewhat related to this, but it is not directly related to this question of race. I was also thinking of Sylvia Winter when we were talking about this, um, who's also influenced by Bateson, yeah. as you both are, right? So, um, but my question is on Islam. Because uh, you said in passing when you were like half an hour ago or like 20 minutes ago that naturalism could have happened in on the other side of the Mediterranean, it could have happened in, in the world of Islam, it could have happened in China, it didn't, and it happened in Europe. And I, um, because of your you know you your your the argument that the naturalism. Sort of transforms, but transforms is a complex word, right, for you. So it, it's, not, it's, it's not mechanical at all, the transformation. Um, there is a radical alteration in the transformation. So maybe that is the answer. But from from uh, analogism, and this is an argument that even someone like Agamben makes, an infancy in his, history, for instance, when he talks about Neoplatonism and the development, the relationship of Neoplatonism and the development of modern science. And uh, and so the question of abstraction, uh, abstraction, and the relationship of that to monotheism. And so I was wondering, because, for instance, levi-strauss says in in race and history. That uh, Islam is actually a different case because, in the context of Islam, they were the place of nature was very different. It was much more inclusive of a different relationship to nature, and that the opposition nature culture was not organized in the same way as right. And I thought maybe you were thinking along those lines, but also at the same time, Islam is a monotheistic religion. I, I work, you know, in a, in, in a Muslim um, collective. And uh, um, and and to me these things are much are are kind of very complex, and I would not be able to simply say that that because it is a monotheistic religion, then we have analogism, and therefore we don't have you know something like that. Could you say more about Islam, the way you were placing it within your arguments?
3: I think it's uh, uh, analogist in the sense that. Uh, of any analogous system that is uh, uh, the world is composed of uh, many differences uh, that need to be uh, uh, organized uh, with systems of correspondence, hierarchy, totalization and monotheism of course is the great invention which allows this process of totalization uh, in a very efficient way. Uh, But why uh, did I say that? uh, Uh, In medieval uh, Islam, in places like Damas, for instance, Damascus, uh, uh, naturalism could have emerged because there were a series of uh, factors uh, uh, like uh, differences in philosophical uh, schools that were competing uh, for Gaining the attention not only of the learned uh, but also of the of the, of the of the powerful, uh, much like in China uh, also uh, uh, e- experiment or experimental uh, uh, science uh, in particular in optics, uh, there were elements like that that it seems to me uh, uh, could have uh, uh, reorganized the specific configuration of relation between nature and culture in Islam towards something that is closer to what we know uh, in uh, in Europe. I'm not a specialist of Islam, but I, I, it's a conjecture. Uh, uh, um, the the um, and of course, uh, well, of course. Ah, the fact that there was a prohibition, at least uh, in this part of the Near East on images, is an interesting... Uh,
0: uh, uh, uh. The preceded by our historians is not But anyway...
3: Well... It, I, I, don't, I don't see the equivalent in... Uh, uh, Islamic images of this kind of prefiguration of something different, uh, of a new form of worlding as, as we observe in 15th century painting in, uh, in Europe. I uh, suppose
4: what I was trying to say is that it maybe does not fit. Uh, and that there are elements of the different modes that comes to worlding. That is that's but
3: anyway, this is something that we can talk about and quite deeply around this actually might be a show. But I would need uh to be a, a specialist of medieval Islam to and uh, to answer so, so it's a, a pure uh, hypothesis. No. I am not prepared to defend it uh, <laughs> yeah, to death.
5: <laughs> uh, let's thank
3: our four wonderful speakers.